Welcome to Live Yes with Arthritis from the Arthritis Foundation. You may have arthritis, but it doesn't have you. Here, you'll learn things that can help you improve your life and turn no into yes. This podcast is part of the Live Yes Arthritis Network, a growing community of people like you who really care about conquering arthritis once and for all. Our hosts are arthritis patients Rebecca and Julie, and they're asking the questions you want answers to. Listen in. Welcome to the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast. I'm Rebecca, an occupational therapist living with rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm Julie, a JA patient who's passionate about making sure all patients have a voice. Today, we're talking about wellness during uncertain and challenging times. We're joining you once again remotely as we socially distance during this coronavirus outbreak. Whether it's a new diagnosis, transitioning insurance plans, or even responding to directives to shelter in place, we all know that transitions can be difficult and sometimes can even make our arthritis worse. That's why we're developing new tools for your toolbox that are essential, especially at times like these, to help cope with change, accept challenges, and take care of your mind and body as we learn to live in this new normal. Before we dive in, we do want to remind you to check out arthritis.org for the very latest news, updates, and information that people with arthritis like you want and need to know about COVID-19. Stay on top of it all with our new constantly updated webpage, arthritis.org slash cares. There, you'll get the latest news, FAQs, and ways to stay connected while keeping our social distance to flatten the curve of coronavirus. A lot of us are feeling anxiety and stress. Things are changing rapidly around us. And so we're talking today about something that's affecting all of us, whether you have arthritis or not, really, wellness during these challenging times. Right. And figuring out a way to live yes during these times can be a particular struggle when the world is so heavy. I know I have found myself operating with a greater level of anxiety than normal that I just can't shake. And that's one of the many reasons that I'm excited to chat with our guest today, Courtney Wells. Me too. Courtney Wells holds advanced degrees in social work and public health, and her research focuses on mental health during times of transition. She focuses in on these areas because of her personal experience growing up with juvenile arthritis. She is a longtime volunteer for the Arthritis Foundation and an incredible expert to help guide us through these challenging times. Thank you so much, Courtney, for being here with us today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself, your arthritis story, and maybe some of your experience with the Arthritis Foundation? I was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis when I was 18 months old, and I'm 37 now, so I've been living with it for quite a long time. And I have had some periods of remission, but for the most part, it's been active and I've been on all the drugs, all the biologics. I've had procedures and surgeries and all sorts of fun things along with that process. I was diagnosed in the early 80s and I grew up at a time where the biologics didn't exist yet. And there wasn't a lot of rheumatology care even in my area in Minnesota at the time when I was diagnosed, which is where I live there was not a pediatric rheumatologist. And so the care has changed really dramatically in my time. And I've been very lucky to take advantage of a lot of that. But what I have still struggled with is my mental health. And 
of course, in hindsight, a lot of this makes more sense to me now than it did then. When I was an adolescent, I was struggling and nobody really knew that I was struggling. I was really good at hiding it. And the more people I talk to, the more I hear a similar story that they are also very good at hiding this. I was a straight A student. I'm real nerdy. I love school. And that was a, was a good thing for me. But people looked at me and they thought, well, you're doing so well. You must be fine. You look great. Your meds must be working. Everything's going well. And inside there was a storm brewing that I didn't realize was happening. When I went to college, I had my first episode of major depression. And I had to move home and I finally had a therapist and got diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And it was a very serious time for me. I started to understand that this was a real thing that was happening to me, not just my arthritis and the physical parts of it, but the emotional reactions that I was having and then how that was affecting my relationships and the process of all these things being connected to each other. I was sitting in my first abnormal psychology class and I was learning about all of these things. And I was like, this is happening to me. This is really happening to me. This is, there is a name for this. And it, it helped me. It really helped me. And so when I first started seeing a therapist and they gave me a name and I could start to say, this is what this is. This is how I feel. These are the way it's impacting my body. This is how it's been impacting my arthritis. And I started to connect all of these things. I realized that I come from a family that has a history of trauma and has a history of pretty serious mental illness. And there was not a lot of discussion of that in my family growing up. And now I understand that that also predisposed me to having mental illness as well as my arthritis. And those things together have really informed my journey and where I ended up with my career. So when I was in college, I was going through a lot of physical and emotional challenges. And I decided that I wanted to turn that into my job and what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And really, it happened because of my interaction with the Arthritis Foundation. I had never met another person with arthritis in my life. I was 20 years old. And I called the Arthritis Foundation in Minnesota and I said, is there a support group? I need to meet somebody. And they said, well, we don't have any for young people at the moment. And I was really discouraged, but I hung up the phone. And then I called back a few minutes later and I said, well, can I start one? Do you have a process of training people? And can I come in and can I volunteer and make this happen? And they said, absolutely. I started volunteering. I started meeting people with arthritis. Some of the people I met at that time are still very close friends of mine. And I met people from all ages. I met parents. I met healthcare providers. And it just opened this entire world. It really was the beginning of a new life for me in a lot of ways. And I have my arthritis family now. One of the earliest experiences that I remember that really changed my career was I was invited to go to a family support group and there was a room full of parents there who had kids with juvenile arthritis and they were very young. And I was sitting next to my pediatric rheumatologist. She was the expert that had been brought in that day. And I was sitting next to her and then it was this table full of families and they wanted to talk to me. I signed up for psychology and organic chemistry and physics. And I decided that I was going to pursue a career helping people like me 
using what I have learned. Really, from that day forward, I haven't looked back. Your story. (laughs) I mean, I'm actually tearing up because hearing your journey resonates so much with me because I did a similar thing. I Mm -hmm. got diagnosed too, and I was in my mid-20s, and there wasn't a lot back then. And so I didn't have support. I didn't have people my age around me. And I switched careers and went to be an occupational therapist. I had to start all over (laughs) and take all those sciences too and really figure out, well, what does this diagnosis mean? And I realized myself as well that, you know what, I can turn this into a positive and try to help other people. And the fact that your focus has been on the mental health piece, boy, I wish I had met you when I was <laughs> that age, you know, and been in your support group and how important that is. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty amazing when I hear all the other people who are out there doing the same thing I was doing at the same time. It just makes me hopeful, but it also makes me feel like, oh, I wish we could have connected. Back then, <laughs> you know? But But now we can. And that's what is also so great about using technology and having access to things in a way that young people didn't have or anybody didn't have then. Yeah, there was no website to go to. There was no way to connect with anybody else because there wasn't Facebook back then, right? (laughs) So there wasn't. uh, Yeah. So growing up and you've seen all sides of it growing up through your teens and, you know, elementary school and college, just like Julie too. Yeah. I think what I like so much about both of your stories and mine is very similar as well. I changed my career. I wanted to come and do this thing and be immersed in public health. But I think what I like so much about it is that whether it was a diagnosis or a course that you were taking, you finally had language to describe something that beforehand you were in this limbo phase about, right? I think that's so true. Whenever you're first becoming symptomatic or you're having a suspicion that maybe you have a new chronic illness, you have all of these things that are happening to you and you don't always know how to describe or define them. I find it very hard to talk about mental health and emotional health. That language is really complicated to me and it makes it difficult to figure out how to cope with these transitions. And I'm just so glad that you're here to to talk about it today. Yes. And I like that you said that because even to this day, so some of it is the words that we use and some of it is the stigma. Mm. And even to this day, I can stand in front of a room of anybody and tell them I have arthritis and I don't flinch. Mm. To stand up in front of a room of people and say that I have depression and anxiety feels very heavy to me and is still a lot harder. I have two children and I've had to learn that unless I can put myself out there and be vulnerable and put words to the things that I'm experiencing, this isn't going to change. The culture isn't going to change. It's never going to get easier. We have to make it change. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's absolutely a fearless act to come up and and stand up and act of courage to really help our whole community. Obviously, we see your passion and hear (laughs) your passion. And tell us a little bit about your research. My research grew out of some observations that I made both in my own experience. And then as soon as I started paying attention to myself, I started realizing that I wasn't the only one that was having these same struggles. And the first thing that happened with me was that I realized that until I got a therapist, 
nobody had ever asked me how I was doing emotionally with my arthritis. People ask me every day about my pain, every day about my medications, every day about my exercise, all of those things. Nobody had ever asked me how I was doing emotionally. And as I unpacked that and started to realize that there was a reason why people hadn't asked me that, it wasn't because they didn't want to know, which is what I automatically assumed sometimes. It was protection. They were protecting themselves and they were protecting me, or they thought that they were protecting me. But in doing that, we were all building up these walls and not connecting with each other. I started to realize that we are not protecting ourselves by doing this. We're actually harming ourselves when we don't break down those walls and be vulnerable with each other and say, sometimes this really sucks. Yeah. I just need to say that. And I don't need you to fix it. I just need you to listen to me say that. And actually, I just need to say it out loud. The more we bottle things up and we stuff them down inside ourselves, they come out sideways. We end up saying things we don't want to say. We say them in a way that's hurtful to other people. We beat ourselves up. We end up doing things that we otherwise wouldn't do and don't want to do. But it's because we've let all of these emotions build up inside of us and then they they have to get out somehow. And so we have to find ways to let them out that are healthy and that are creative and that are going to actually make us feel better. We don't teach people how to do that. We don't teach kids how to do that. Just in general, in our culture, we don't do that. I think we are starting to do that a little bit better and people are starting to talk to it a little bit more. But historically, our culture has been really bad about talking about mental health, about letting people be vulnerable. My research has really started to explore what is this complex emotional process that's going on inside of people who are living with rheumatic diseases? And it could be any chronic disease, but my research particularly looks at rheumatic diseases and mainly younger adults, but it, I, I do find that it's relevant to all ages. I think sometimes we hold back because you feel like the people around you aren't prepared for the answer that you really want to give. So mm-hmm. then you guard yourself. It took me a long time. If somebody asked me how I felt and I really didn't feel good, I might just say, I'm okay. But now I will really just say it. A lot of it is I really don't feel great. You know, like I will actually tell people that. And when I first started doing it, I think people around me were were taken by surprise that I actually gave a real answer, but then they don't really know how to react. So I'm so glad you're researching Mm. that piece. Yeah. When I started being real with people, they didn't really know how to respond. And I think that's one of the things that holds a lot of people in a space where they keep compartmentalizing and then it comes out sideways, like Courtney was saying. And I realized a lifetime with this disease, I realized at some point that people won't ever learn how to respond to it unless we give them an opportunity to. And so being real every day and saying how you're feeling and really communicating with the people around you, even if it's just a small circle, the more opportunities we give them, I think the better off it can be. That's certainly been true from my perspective. But getting to a point that got me comfortable saying that out loud that was really hard. And it took a mental health professional to help me get there. 
That's for sure. So my husband's a psychologist and he's trained. This is what he does all day long. But when he comes home, he doesn't necessarily want to sit and hear about all my problems all night, (laughs) which I understand. And actually it's been through my interaction with him and us being really open and honest with each other of saying, when you say this, this is how that feels to me. Or when you don't do that, that's what that feels like. And little bit by little bit, we start to realize, well, this is what's helpful in this moment. And and now we've been married for almost 15 years and it's been a really long process of trying to figure that out, but it's been helpful that we're both mental health professionals and we're both struggling through the <laughs> process at the same time. And we've been able to say exactly those things. Okay, this is a safe space and we need to be able to express ourselves, both of us, about all of these things. Yeah, it's it's a constant learning process. We know this is a stressful time. We really want to understand how the coronavirus is impacting your physical and emotional health, as well as your ability to access your doctors and the medication you need. Please take the Live Yes Insights Assessment to help us understand and provide resources to help. Go to arthritis.org slash insights. I wonder, Courtney, I think that these are obviously incredibly difficult conversations to have on a good day, but especially when we're navigating uncharted waters, when we're going through something that's difficult and we're coping with a change, how do we navigate that uncertainty and still have these conversations and and do this with those around us? Well, it takes a commitment. I mean, people have to be aware and they have to be willing to say, this is going to take some time. This is going to be a process. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do a little bit at a time and recognizing that you're going to have to put in some work. Things can feel worse before they feel better. And it could take a little while to get to that point where you're feeling better. But ultimately, the only way to get there is to go through it. The first part is always naming it. You have to recognize in your own body, what does it feel like? What are these emotions? And then you have to have the words to communicate those. And until you get to that point, you really can't move on to the next step. So you have to start with that and and then being able to have those conversations to move to the next level. And you have to have people who are there to support you. Once you go through the process, you feel better and you feel more connected and you start to feel more meaning and purpose in all of this work that comes along. There's a level of acceptance that you have to get to with your diagnosis and the challenges you're facing and trying to figure out how to navigate that. Exactly. So I started off looking bigger picture at the emotional processes that people are going through. And what I've been finding in my research is that grief is one of the key processes that is happening. And I continue to be shocked by how few people think about this in the context of chronic illness. We tend to talk about grief as death relating to people dying, but the way I've come to see it is that we are dealing with death, but we're dealing with these little deaths. Some are bigger than others, but really we have little deaths every day that we're confronting and it's the same process. And some things may seem very insignificant in the bigger picture, but for us, it is really hard. And an example I often give is I love coffee. 
It is one of my favorite things in the world. And my body hates caffeine. <laughs> oh, no. I have headaches. I have heart palpitations. Oh, no. I have high blood pressure. I have, you know, all the things, anxiety. When I drink coffee, it it sends me into this absolute abyss. And I have finally accepted the fact that I shouldn't drink caffeine. It is bad for me and I feel bad when I do it. So I drink decaf, but then every now and then I have a little bit of caffeine and I constantly go through this process. And that has been one of the hardest things for me to give up. But there's so many things. And and this is what I find when I work with anybody of anybody age, when I talk to them about what's been the hardest part about living with your disease. And they always say some version of, I had to give up this. I lost this. I can't do this anymore. People don't think Mm. about it as grief. They think about it as the things that they're losing, the things that they have to give up. But grief is your response to loss. There are things that are going to make us sad. There are things that are going to make us angry. There are things that are going to make us anxious and frustrated. And that is normal. The grief part of it is natural and normal. You have to remember, not just at diagnosis, when somebody gets a new diagnosis, they go through the stages of grief. And there are several stages of grief. There's something every day that kind of pops up like, man, I wish I could do this and and I can't. And you go through this process and you have to go through that process to be able to move on and to move forward. So how do we get them to get through all those stages of grief? What are your suggestions? Well, that's the big question, right? How do you do that? How do you grieve? And we don't have a good answer to that. There is not a step that you follow to get from this place to this place to this place. Everybody is different. Everybody experiences their emotions differently. They have different losses. It has to start with recognizing that there's something happening in your life that is making you feel sad, angry, frustrated, anxious, naming that feeling, and then trying to figure out what you can control and what you can't control. And there's a lot of evidence to show that there's typically two ways that we cope with things. There's emotion-based coping and there's problem-based coping. And both of them are helpful, but they're helpful in different situations. And this is where I think people don't always realize that there is a rational process you can go through to start thinking about how to handle or how to cope with a lot of these emotions. There's a book that I really like that's called Burnout, but she really talks about recognizing the difference between the stressor and the stress response and that they're not the same thing. So we can come up with a plan to address the stressor. We can make a list. There are tasks that we can do to try and address the stressor itself. The stress response, on the other hand, we have to be able to deal with emotionally. And there are some stressors that are out of our control, like what's happening right now in the world. There is a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of stress going on because we don't have control over the situation and there's a lot of uncertainty. And that's true with a chronic illness as well. And in that case, what I like to tell people is you have to find ways to ground yourself. And usually that is some sort of routine or process that is going to get you to connect your mind and your body together. Things like meditation, breathing, music for some people, could be exercise for some people. There's endless ways that you can do that. But 
find something that brings you to a place of peace, a piece of comfort within yourself. Yeah. And that so much of it is letting go of things that you cannot control, but recognizing that there are things and there are ways, there are tactics that allow you to regain and and empower yourself over that stressor, especially when the world is as crazy as it is today. I often have a difficult time thinking, how how can me, Julie, this one little person take control or do anything to cope with this uh, news and, and with life and all of these pieces and remembering that maybe it's not even controlling all of the world's stress, but certainly what is happening in my life and with my family. I find that meditation is something that um, really helps me get there. And I didn't know I needed it until we recorded a, a meditation episode a yeah. couple months ago. So if you haven't listened, tune in because there's some really great information there as well. Do you find that the same things that allow us to help tackle that grief, are they the same tactics that help us cope with anxiety and other kind of symptoms? I think there are overlapping similarities as far as that initial process of naming it, being aware, recognizing what's happening in our body, being in touch with our bodies and our emotions. You may need to lean into those emotions a little bit. And that's the part that we don't teach people how to do very well. You need to learn to sit with discomfort. And that's where things like meditation and mindfulness can be really helpful. And there are a lot of apps, there are a lot of tools that can guide you through that process. Because in our culture, we tend to avoid things that make us uncomfortable. One of the things that you need to recognize is that it gets easier the more that you do it the first few times that you go through this process and you're going to have to work through some of that anger and some of that sadness, however that works for you. And and you have to get it out like we were talking about. And that could be talking, that could be writing, that could be making music, it could be art, but you have to release it. Sometimes when people get stuck in their grief process, it does turn into depression or it does turn into other mental health conditions that do need professional help or medications. And sometimes you need medications to get you through a certain time because it's just the discomfort is overwhelming. And that's okay. I have not wanted to take medications for my depression and I've really struggled with that process. I'll take any drug they tell me to for my arthritis. Now that doesn't mean I want to take those. That's a whole nother process. But I have recognized and accepted that I need to be on medications for my arthritis. My depression and anxiety is a lot harder for me because of that stigma. I still feel that there's this weakness that I'm not strong enough or if I could only do this, then I would feel better. And I'm slowly getting to the same point where I'm recognizing that for whatever reason, I am programmed in a way that is overly sensitive to certain things. And if I take some medications, it allows me to do the work that I want to do, to be with my children in the way that I want to be with them. And I can't seem to do that when I'm not on the medication. And I'm trying to reframe how I'm thinking about medications for my depression and anxiety in the same way that I think about it for my arthritis. That has taken me a really long time to get to that point. And that's part of figuring out for each person, what does that look like for you? What would be helpful in that process? Who might be helpful in that process? It's messy. 
<laughs> yeah. It's not straightforward. Nobody can That's give right. you an answer, unfortunately. Well, and, and it might come in waves. That's right. It usually does come in waves. Yes. Yeah. In my first couple of years of being diagnosed, my first rheumatologist was pretty good actually in checking in with me. How is your stress level? Do you have a lot of anxiety? You know, how are you feeling? And I fought against it because of that stigma. I was in my mid-20s, right? Like, no, I'm not going to be put on medication. And after about a year or so of just not being able to get anything under control, he said, no, I'm going to put you on anti-anxiety medication because I want to show you that if we can manage your stress and your anxiety, you might not flare as much. So begrudgingly, I did it and it actually helped. But it's hard to get there. Why do I have to take something for my mental health? I should be able to manage this on my own. But it's not an easy thing to do. I know that there's the five stages of grief. And there's also a sixth stage that's been written about. And it's that finding meaning piece. So tell me about that from your perspective. I'm glad you brought that up. This is the part that I am most excited about. In with my research and what I'm looking into, because what I'm finding is this parallel process of identity development that particularly young people are going through when they're transitioning into adulthood and their grief process that's happening alongside that. And it seems as though the closer people get to accepting their chronic illness, the easier it is for them to integrate that part of their life into the rest of their life. And then once they're able to do that, people are more able to find meaning and purpose through their disease. I've heard hundreds of stories at this point from people who say, well, I learned this from my body, from my disease, from interacting with the healthcare system, and that ended up being a benefit to me. And then it helped me find this career or do this different thing that I thought I never could do. There's a whole new world of opportunity that opens up. There's something really beautiful on the other side. Understanding and wrapping your arms around that, that's that transitional moment. It certainly was for me when I realized that you know, I was not going to grow out of my juvenile arthritis, figuring that out and accepting that. That was when I struggled the most. And that was also when I found the most purpose. And a lot of it has to do with meeting people who understand. I didn't really fully understand how meaningful and real that was until I saw it reflected in friends that I made through the Arthritis Foundation and in our arthritis community. I was wondering, Courtney, if you could talk about some of the the ways that you've seen this really work through support groups. One thing I've heard a lot from people is that when they are first diagnosed, there is often some avoidance or denial that can come along. It's not for everybody, but for a lot of people, that is normal that that happens. And unfortunately, what ends up being a downside to that is that it prevents them from getting involved in camps or support groups or just calling the Arthritis Foundation for any reason because they don't want to see themselves as somebody who needs this, somebody who has arthritis. And I hear that from people a lot that they look back on their life and they think, oh, I wish that I would have gotten to this point sooner. Because once they do start to connect with other people, 
so many wonderful things happen. They learn more about their disease. They help other people cope with their disease. They feel better physically and emotionally because of all of those things. They're able to express themselves. People understand. They don't have to have those walls built up. And I think that's what people are missing out on and that they don't really know that it exists because they've never seen it and they've never felt that way before. That's really powerful. And it's so true, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. The first time I went to a walk, I felt like I was surrounded by people who just got it. They literally walk in my shoes. They literally know that if I have a wrist brace on, it's not carpal tunnel. They know why. They knew if I was limping that she's having a bad day. I don't have to explain it. They, they understood it. And that's the one thing I always try to share with other healthcare providers is that the best thing you can do for your patients with a chronic disease, especially arthritis, is to get them connected to somebody else like them. Yeah. I think at the Arthritis Foundation with all of these programs and realizing that all of those identities are are represented and are here and are welcoming to you, I think is such an important thing. Courtney, if you're feeling withdrawn and you're feeling like you can't take that first step, what are some of the ways that you can start to engage and start to put your toe in the water, so to speak? It's easier, I think, than it used to be because of technology. Before you had to pick up the phone, it really was the only option or go physically to the building. And now that that might not even be an option to go to a building. It depends where you live, but go on the website. Start looking at some of the information. There is really wonderful information on the Arthritis Foundation website and see what they're about. See what activities are happening. But it just depends on what they're looking for and what their needs are. But getting that information, connecting with one or two people, those are the perfect places to start. There's a lot of support groups in the different social media channels. And the Arthritis Foundation does have an online community. And you can be anonymous. You can ask questions. You can just read what people are posting as far as questions because they probably have the same ones as you and see how people share ideas and and sometimes commiserate together. I think right now, as we are learning to live in a new normal with a pandemic all around the world and how we think about anxiety and depression and grief, I think right now is the best time to start exploring and and checking out some of those options, getting connected to people, even though we are physically distant. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to be socially distant. We can stay connected. We can really be a part of this community, even from far away. Courtney, do you have other tips or suggestions that folks can employ to become more comfortable in their new normal? Well, you have to start by thinking about your environment, especially right now when we're in our houses a lot, and we may not have the option to go other places, but you need to have a safe space, a place where you can go and it feels comforting, it feels grounding, Maybe it's in your closet. It can be anywhere. I know everybody doesn't have an extra room. It could be in the bathroom. It could be in the shower. I mean, really just a place where you feel that you can breathe, you can let it out, whatever it is that you're holding inside. And I know, especially right now, a lot of us who are parents, we're very aware of what we're saying or not saying in front of our children. And we have to remember that our children mainly learn by watching us. 
And we have to teach them how to cope with stress. Yeah. And we don't typically do a very good job at that. It's not just the genes that we're passing down or the education or all those types of things. It's also the behaviors that we have. And our kids are observing us and they're watching. And that modeling is really, really important in our homes right now. And just checking in with yourself, checking in with your family members, checking in with your kids to see really, how are you doing? So I try every day to at least stop for a minute and look them in the eye and say, how are you doing? Are you feeling overwhelmed right now? Is there anything that you're worried about? It can be helpful to ask people those questions when they're doing something. And this happened yesterday with my daughter. I've been asking her, she's seven, and I've been asking her, how are you feeling about all this stuff? And she's, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But yesterday we went for a bike ride. And then I said, are you still feeling okay? Is there anything you're worried about? And she said, mom, I am worried about you. She said, I'm worried about you because I know you have arthritis and that if you get sick, this could be worse for you. We both had tears in our eyes and I said, we're both worried about this. And thank you for sharing that. And I'm worried too. And this is how I'm trying to, to deal with that right now. And so giving ourselves a moment to cry and giving ourselves a moment to talk about it, but also building in those little moments of connection and building in those moments of release, whatever that looks like for you <laughs> is, is how you're going to get through it. Yeah. Doing something while you're talking, all these walks we've been going on have been a great time for our family to connect and check in with each other. So I think that added benefit of physical activity, but just that time to be able to communicate. Right. Things like exercise, diet, sleep, all of these other general self-care activities are essential when we're talking about mental health too. And that conversation also doesn't happen very often. We're starting to understand on a much more biological and biochemical level that what we put in our bodies and how we move our bodies is just as important for how our brain functions and how our mood is than everywhere else in our body. Share your coronavirus and arthritis thoughts, tips, and stories. And ask our subject matter experts questions on our Live Yes Arthritis Network online community discussion forum. Go to arthritis.org slash live yes. Join the online community to access the Hot Topics Coronavirus Forum. Courtney, I think so much of what you've offered today is a lot to do with giving yourself permission to feel the things you're feeling, giving others around you a platform to respond and support you as you support them, and really tapping into those feelings and thinking about how you can take control, how you can have some mechanism here to own your experience with arthritis and your experience with coronavirus and your experience with the world that we're living in. I think that's incredibly powerful. So thank you so much for sharing those. Are there a few top takeaways that you'd like our listeners to leave our conversation today with? I think you summarized them very well. Making mental health a priority by being vulnerable and really committing to spending some time each day being vulnerable. That can be five minutes. You don't want to live in that state either because it has to be about balance. But 
that's the first step. It has to start with that. And then the naming and then the communicating around that, that part of it. And then finding creative ways to release your feelings, the pressure, whatever it is that's building up inside of you. That's going to be for you. I mean, you're going to have to figure that out on your own. Everybody is different in how they do that. But you have to interact with your emotions. And I love the movie Inside Out for lots of reasons. But yes. they name the emotions. And my favorite thing about that movie, and it makes me cry every time, they hit the nail on the head with the importance of sadness and how you, you need those feelings to feel the good feelings. They're in contrast to each other. Right. And if you need a reminder of that, go watch that movie. <laughs> you have to figure out how do you let all of your emotions live and interact in a way that's healthy for you. And that's not easy. And there isn't a prescription for that. The other thing that I would like to encourage, especially rheumatology patients to be thinking about is telling their story being honest about what's really going on with them when they're in the doctor's office, because our healthcare providers, especially right now, they're very overwhelmed. But in general, they are stressed. They are under a lot of pressure. They don't have a lot of time. They have so many things that they need to accomplish. And they don't always get the education or the training that we would like them to get as far as the mental health piece of things go. We're doing our community a disservice when we aren't honest with them. If we can be honest and be vulnerable also with our healthcare providers, that's going to allow them to give you better care and to understand the bigger picture of what's going on with your health. And then that helps researchers and it helps all of us learn more about what it means to live with these rheumatic conditions. Thank you. I mean, this has been a very powerful discussion. Obviously, people can't see us, but both Julie and I, and I think you too, Courtney, we all made each other teary-eyed at some point, but it is hard. It is hard to confront our feelings and to share them, but thank you for providing some tips to help us get there, and I think so many people can use this right now. Yeah, thanks so much, Courtney. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. This Live Yes with Arthritis podcast was brought to you by the trusted experts of the Arthritis Foundation. For the most up-to-date information regarding coronavirus and arthritis, visit our website, arthritis.org. Or you can check the CDC website at cdc.gov for the latest information. We're bringing together leaders in the arthritis community to help you make a difference in your own life in ways that make sense. You may have arthritis, but it doesn't have you. The Arthritis Foundation would like to thank Janssen and Sanofi Genzyme Regeneron for sponsoring today's episode. Go to arthritis.org slash liveyespodcast for episodes and show notes. And stay in touch. 